Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is our Milan review episode, and I am joined by a guest to help me out with that. It's his second appearance on the show after his episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide, Ashley Pierce, welcome back. Hi, Joe. Great to be here. Thanks for having us back on. It's a pleasure. Obviously, after a loss, it's it's never the most fun. Fortunately for us, that hasn't happened all that often this season. I guess, unfortunately for you, you were actually in attendance to witness this loss, which isn't great, but hopefully you got to enjoy Napoli as a city because... It's always worthwhile going regardless of the result of the match you happen to be at. Obviously, the big story around this match was the whole drama with the ultras and their protest. We'll touch on that at the end of the episode, because obviously with you being in the stands, I'm eager to hear your perspective on how that whole situation played out. But, you know, there's been so much talk about that already on other shows. So I want to spend most of the episode talking about what we saw on the pitch, if that's okay with you. And, you know, in my four takeaways piece on the website, I wrote that everything went right for Milan and everything went wrong for Napoli. So I think that's how we'll split up this episode. We'll talk about everything that went right for Milan in part one and everything that went wrong for Napoli in part two. And actually, first and foremost, it feels like Stefano Pioli got the better of Luciano Spalletti from a tactical perspective in terms of things that went right. Yeah, I think being there, and I saw you, you wrote on your piece that Labocca was shut down perfectly. I think he, Pioli, had seen that what obviously we normally can do is give it out wide to the fullbacks, go long, Victor can chase things, Victor can terrify defenders. I don't think Simeone had a bad game. I don't think he had any service. And he's just not that striker. I think against lesser opposition, we might have still come out with it. And, I, you know, I'll send someone as well. We'll see how Friday goes against Lecce. But if Lecce and Milan were the other way around and we had a game to get used to not having Victor and adapting the tactics a little bit. And then if we had Milan afterwards, I think, you know, I know we have in the Champions League, I think I'd be a little bit more 
confident, but everything at the at the wrong time was, you know, we've inter after the World Cup break. We seem to come back in slowly. We do seem to come back in slowly. We did miss Victor, and I think psychologically and tactically that made a, a big difference. But yeah, like you said, I think it was everything that could go wrong for us went wrong. Everything that they could get right, they did, sadly. A lot of the chatter before the match was whether Pioli was going to stick with a back three or revert to the back four. And once again, a Serie A coach proved why they are way better at coaching than I am because I thought they would stick with the back three and instead he switched to that back four. My logic was that Davide Calabria has been really out of form and it just didn't make sense to have an out of form player mark a player on our side who is one of the favorites to win the league MVP in Kovicic Paraskelia. But I guess Pioli saw in training that Calabria was ready for this battle and credit to him. He did a good job, you know, as good of a job as anyone has this season in shutting down Cavada. And I thought he did it in a very smart way. He basically did damage control or like risk prevention. He just played off the ball. He jockeyed. In other words, he made it difficult for Cavada to even try to dribble past him. So what did Cavada do? He passed the ball off. We had 20 shot attempts in this match compared to Milan's 14, but only four of those shot attempts hit the target. And that's because with Cavada passing the ball off, we often settled for shots from outside the area. Simeone and Lobotka both had shots in the second half that didn't come anywhere near the goal. Zielinski had a decent effort in the near the end of the first half that hit the target, but again, from outside the area and with that kind of power and Mike Magnon in goal, you're probably not going to score that often with those types of chances. So Milan negated our biggest weapon. And as you noted, Victor's our other biggest weapon, or maybe even our biggest weapon when he plays, but he was out injured. So without those two guys, it's not really that big of a shock that our attack struggled. The other reason we struggled in the attack was because Milan just obliterated our midfield. And Ashley, you, I mean, you touched on it a little bit there, but you know, was this the worst performance from our midfield trio this season? Yeah, absolutely, undoubtedly. From Lobotka, misplaced passes, which is just so rare. His pass completion so 90-odd percent usually, isn't it? Angisa had lots of missed passes. Zilu just looked a bit off it. There just wasn't the outlets that there normally is. And like you said, that was credit, I think, to Pioli and, and Milan for seeing what that was, seeing that normally if you compress that midfield, we didn't have that outlet. I think as the game wore on, we were two down very quickly and then three down very quickly into the second half. I think it would have been, you know, Simeone's strength lies in maybe holding the ball up, maybe a bit more powerful in the air. He had that one chance in the first half, I think before Milan scored. It would have been maybe nice to see, but like you said, the fullbacks weren't on point as, as usual. It might have been nice to see some more balls go into the box to see us, us fight a little bit for that. But even then, Kier was dominant in the air and, and very good. So, yeah, the midfield really, really struggled and, and Milan's midfield was excellent on the night. Yeah, that's the other thing going back to the formation. Part of the reason why I thought Milan would play with the three-man back line was because then they would have wing backs who could drop back and help defend double-team players like Cavada. They still did that even with the 4-2-3-1. In fact, with that front three behind Giroud, they all dropped as well. So it was like they were playing with a back four and a midfield five. That's nine players behind the ball just clogging up the midfield. They're taking away the passing lanes. And most importantly, they're taking away the space, which is something we've talked a lot about with this Napoli side, right? Like space is such an important part of our game. That's what we typically exploit. 
And that's why we excel in the Champions League. And at least at the beginning of the season or maybe last season, we struggled against some of the weaker teams who just sit deep in a low block or even the better teams like the way Inter played against us and they just take away that space. So that's one way that Pioli shut down our midfield. The other way he did it, I thought, was with sort of the specific assignments he gave to some of his players. Ishmael Benacer in particular was very clearly instructed to just follow Lobotka around the park and he did that to great effect. Lobotka is always good at making quick decisions, but Benacer forced him to play even quicker than that. And as a result, he made some mistakes. He had one of his lowest pass completion rates of the season. You kind of alluded to that as well. But it wasn't entirely on the book his decision-making either. It was also because he didn't have that many options. And the reason for that, I thought, was because of how well Milan pressed as a collective. It seemed like every time our midfielders had the ball, they were kind of swarmed by Milan players And that made us play a little bit frantically. And as a result, we turned over the ball a lot more than we normally do. Now, I think we all know the importance of Victor Osiman to this squad. But I still think we might be underestimating how important that was in terms of a a loss of personnel. I think we kind of dismissed his absence a little bit because we won all seven matches without him so far this season. And because we have very good backups in Simeone and Raspadori, although Raspadori, we knew at most he would only come on late in the match, sort of off the bench, because he just had that long injury break. But this was exactly the type of match that we needed Osimen because normally when we don't have an option to play short to in the midfield, we just hoof the ball forward to Osimen, And more often than not, Victor will turn that negative situation into a positive. And that doesn't mean that he's going to score every time we play the ball long or that he's going to create a chance every time we play the ball long. But almost always, he's going to win a corner kick or a throw-in deep in the opponent's territory. He might even concede a throw-in, but that still shifts our entire position on the pitch further up the pitch, which then becomes a tactical advantage. It pins Milan deep and then we can press high and try to win the ball back or force them to clear the ball and give it right back to us at midfield. So there's a bit of a tactical benefit that Osiman's presence alone provides to us. Instead, we had Simeone there, who I love, but he's not going to win matches with his pace. Like There was that one chance early in the match where he got to the ball first and then he just couldn't outpace Tamori, who's a very quick defender after his first touch. And so Victor is just a completely different animal. So we covered Milan's back line and their midfield. Let's move on to their attack, which was probably the most devastating part of Milan's game on Sunday. Ashley, I mean, you got to see this firsthand at the Maradona, but Rafael Leao and Brahim Diaz just completely wreaked havoc on our back line. Yeah, I think Leao in particular, when you so it was just the, the power, the strength, the speed, the skill was just, phenomenal and every time he got to the ball we were panicking every time he got to the ball he seemed to have a really positive impact for them that it led to something sadly usually a goal but it would be a chance there was huge amounts of fear there was bits in the media and I think this might have been I obviously have no idea what Pioli said to the Milan team but I think the mentality thing of you know we are still Italian champions going into Milan and you know even around the city it's there is threes on scudettos everywhere there you know it's in naples it's being decided that we've won um the title and we actually saw the milan team bus come in there was some you know 
fans are hanging outside the hotel. But obviously they would have driven through the city to get to the Maradona where there's everything is, is up to celebrate. And I think that's an easy team talk for Pioli to say, look, look, you know, we're still the champions. Look what they think they've they've already achieved. And Leao in particular, who hasn't had anywhere near the season this season that he had last season, and particularly being outshone by Cavada every week, I think he really did have a point to prove. And sadly for us on the night, he did prove it. Um, yeah, he was in particular absolutely phenomenal, I thought. It's funny because I even saw some comments online about how you know, maybe people need to settle down a little bit with all the, the decorations and all the preemptive celebrating that's happening in the city. I think maybe a little bit of doubt has creeped into people's minds now with, you know, if Juve get their points back, they would only be 12 points back, which is still a huge margin if you think about it with, you know, the remaining schedule, only 10 games and some of the opponents, like even if we lost to Juve and to Inter and even Fiorentina, we'd probably still win the other matches. But being a superstitious city, it's it's actually surprising that so many of those threes have gone up throughout the city, which just tells you, yeah, I mean, with a 20-point lead, 21-point lead, 18, 19 points, whatever it was over the, the last few rounds, people are that confident in winning the title. But, you know, the Milan players literally reminded us that they were still the champions. Like we saw mm-hmm. Alexis Salamakers pointing the, to the Scudetto badge on his shirt. We saw... I think Rafael Leal did it as well. So yeah, the the champions, the current champions played as close of a game as they probably did last season when they won the Scudetto. You know, some people were saying that we resurrected Rafael Leal. He scored twice against us after not scoring a single goal in Milan's last 11 games in all competitions. But honestly, I don't think we resurrected Leao as much as Rafael Leao resurrected Rafael Leao. And the reason I say that is because Milan had a chance only a few minutes into the match where Leao played this kind of back heel flick down the line to Teo Hernandez, and that led to a chance for Brahim Diaz. And to me, that little back heel was kind of an early indication that Leao showed up ready to play this match. And there are some players who you know usually within the first five minutes of the match, if they're going to have a good or bad match. I think Piotr Zielinski is probably one of those players as well, right? Like if you see him do one of those quick kind of back heel turns that he likes to do early in the match, then you know he's in the mood and he's probably going to have a strong performance. But like I said, the pundits were right that this was the quality we saw from him when he won the Serie A MVP award layout that is. I'll get to Napoli's defense in part two, but just focusing on Leao right now, when he's playing that way, there's probably little that anyone can do to stop him. Like we can criticize our center backs on the goals that we conceded, but even on this, on the first goal, we were set up fairly well. We had men back to defend that situation properly, but Brahim made a great play on the touchline and he played a great through ball and Leao timed it well. We were a little bit out of position, which I'll touch on later. And then, you know, that little dink over Meretz was another indication that Leao was in the mood. The way he dribbled past Rachmani and finished with his weaker left foot in the second half was another example of that. And at that point, he had so much confidence that he was able to make a play like that. He was also involved in the build-up to the second goal. He played the give-and-go with Giroud before passing to Benacer on the wing. Giroud had a bit of a quiet match. Besides that one chance in the second half, we didn't really hear his name called all that often. But that was a lovely little cushioned return pass to Leao with Kim draped all over him. And then, of course, 
Brahim finished with the dummy on Mario Rui and the deflection off Kim. How did you feel about Brahim's performance? I feel like he's been one of those players that has also kind of been a lot better, maybe even longer than Leao, because Leao really just turned it on for this match, whereas Brahim, I feel like the whole second half of the mm. season, he stepped it up to another level. Yeah, I think what so what all three or four of them, if you include Salamak, has been doing, you know, like I said, Giroud, seen him in England many times at Arsenal and Chelsea, what he occupies the centre-backs. Um, even if he's not really doing anything, you know, he's he's there. And that allowed the other three to just work off him. And Diaz and Salamakas and they were just sort of meandering around the pitch. And we're not the, you know, Spalletti very rarely changes his tactics for the opposition. And it's been incredibly successful. And, you know, we wouldn't obviously coming into this game, whilst, you know, being respectful of Milan, wouldn't have been fearful enough to think, right, well, we're going to change our incredibly successful tactics for this season to try and deal with that. But yeah, like we you said earlier, that's what almost the advantage of being so far back. If you're Milan and Pioli, you can focus game by game and change your tactics. And all three of them were, we didn't really get close to them. So yeah, while Giroud was sort of occupying Kim and Rachmani, then the other three were meandering all over the place. And we didn't really pick them up. Our fullbacks didn't go in to pick them up. And you said Lobotka was being sat on by Benacer. So yeah, those three were, were very hard to pin down, I think. Collectively, they were, they were very good. Going back to the point about individual assignments, even though Leao and Brahim were kind of lined up in the two wide positions, it felt like they were given the freedom to roam wherever they wanted. And that created a lot of problems, that movement. Like on that first goal again, Liao's running across the middle of the park to receive that pass, right? So I think that threw us off a little bit tactically. And I completely agree. Like, why would... I mean, from a tactical standpoint, I almost feel like we were at a bit of a disadvantage coming into this match just because, to your point, and, you know, it's we can criticize Spalletti for this, but with a system that's worked so well this season, you know, there's very little motivation to make a change at least not a dramatic change, you know, to maybe catch your opponent off guard. Whereas the position that Milan were in, not only competing for Champions League qualification, but they had struggled in the the matches prior to this one. So they had all the freedom in the world to make whatever changes they wanted to. And I don't know if Pioli just has Spalletti's number, if it's just that because of those changes. And perhaps, you know, there's even a, a motivation factor there where, as much as Spalletti's been doing a great job of keeping his players focused, it's still a lot harder to get yourself psychologically hyped up for a match like this, even against Milan when you have such a big lead over them in the table. And hopefully it's it's a little bit different in the Champions League. Interestingly, Brahim was, he was taken off in the 56th minute. We saw that his thigh was pretty heavily bandaged. So we'll have to see how he holds up. Milan play Empoli on Friday, so if they stick with the 4-2-3-1, which I can't imagine them changing after a statement win like this one, then Pioli will probably play Alexis Salamakers in that role. It also would be like a reward for him scoring his first goal in 100 years, and that would allow Brahim to rest for the Champions League. Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about what went wrong for Napoli, and what this means for our upcoming Champions League tie. Welcome to part two of the Fortunapoli podcast. 
If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help us to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsanapolipress.com. Okay, so we covered already what went right for Milan. Let's talk a little bit about what went wrong for Napoli. Just like we did in part one, I want to start with the tactics. Actually, I can understand why we had a poor first half. We had a good game plan, or maybe not a good game plan, but we had a game plan. It didn't work. Maybe Pioli did some things we weren't expecting like we talked about. Personally, I'm sure Spalletti would have planned for a back three and a back four because there was so much chatter about that in the build-up to the match that there was enough reason to plan for both. But perhaps he didn't expect such an aggressive high press from Milan or the man-marking from Benacer, so I get that. What I didn't understand is after he witnessed his team get completely played off the park in the first half, why he didn't make any changes either tactically or in terms of personnel in the second half. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, th- I think we know that Spalletti doesn't like to change tactics too much, particularly you know in-game, not that between games we do massively. It's almost a sort of perfect storm. The, the early second half goal, I think also, and, and the quality of that goal was quite a kick-in if we did come out in the second half with a different different mentality. We just looked a bit like our energy was completely sapped, uh, which, you know, has been completely opposite of what we've seen for the entirety of the rest of the season. It was just one game, sadly the one game I'm going to get to this season, where um, we just didn't look, you know, didn't look there. And then, like you said, then when the subs came, it didn't look like we had changed tactics. It was just personnel changes or even standard sort of Spalletti making the changes quite late at that point it almost felt like we're just resting players and and had given up the game and that might all be tied into what we'll you know mention in in a bit about the ultras but it was just it was quite a flat second half uh it was a very very flat second half there were you know we didn't really create many chances I think Milan had us at arm's length all the way through and yeah we we didn't really look like we were ever going to change it actually the last time I can think of where we looked that drained of energy was the Inter match, which also curiously happened to be immediately after an international break. A much longer one, obviously, with the World Cup, but I wonder if that has anything to do with it as well. I mentioned in part one that without Osimen, we didn't have that outlet when we got ourselves into trouble. That's why I wanted to see Lozano start in this match, because at least he would inject some of that pace that was missing now. I understand why Spalletti started Politano. I think he wanted a player with his work rate that could track back to help defend, knowing a player like Teo Hernandez likes to get forward. Ultimately, Teo still won that battle, but I don't think Politano was as bad as a lot of people were making it out to be. I don't know if you felt differently watching it live. I don't think Politano had his best game. Um, And I think when Lozano did come on that, at that stage, the game was already gone, but he did run at Teo Hernandez and he did have a, a little bit more of an impact. Going back to what I said earlier, that with Lozano, I think you're more likely to get him running at the fullback and got obviously going on the outside and maybe crossing, which I think might have suited Simeone more than with Osimen. Every time, obviously, Politano gets it, there's cutting back on the left, which slowed everything down, which if Milan were having a high press, we that one or two extra step, if we were going to have anything, seemed to slow it down. So I don't think Politano was terrible, but um, I think it's very hard to deal with 
again, Teo Hernandez and, and Rafael Leao look like the players they were last season. That Hernandez was fantastic and sort of didn't let Politano get anything. But when Lozano came on, but that might have been because Hernandez was a bit more tired at that point. But yeah, I, I think I would have preferred to have seen Lozano maybe to start and then certainly would have been preferred him to come on a bit earlier. Yeah, exactly. Like I was going to say the same thing, even with Politano, regardless, I mean, I may be in the minority in terms of how he played in this match, which is fine. But regardless, with a two goal deficit at the break, you know, at that point, we have to be thinking about scoring goals, even if it means exposing ourselves a little bit more at the back. So why not bring Lozano on at the start of the second half? I know Spalletti doesn't like making uh, changes at the half, but this was sort of desperate times called for desperate measures. Instead, he made no changes, as you said, both in terms of personnel and tactics until it was too late. And, you know, there was one play, going back to Politano for a second, there was one play where, even though I defended that, I thought was a really bad sign. And it was early in the second half. This was the chance that Giroud had where Medet made a really good save on him. And then he ended up being called offside anyways. That play started with everyone pressing high. But then Teo just ran into the space in the midfield and Politano didn't follow him. And it just looked like acres of space opened up that maybe wouldn't have been there had Politano tracked back. The other thing that I didn't like about Spalletti's tactics, and you just alluded to it a moment ago, was you know the lack of crosses. And it seemed to me that Spalletti was encouraging Mario Rui to come into the middle of the park which completely takes away his biggest strength, which is his cross, because he's left-footed. And when you take away Mario Rui's cross, then you're also basically taking Cholito out of the match as well, because that's where he thrives, you know, winning headers in the area. Now, granted, that third goal was not a result of a tactical error. Zielinski turned the ball over in the middle of the park, and Milan were just off to the races. You know, Zielinski was almost non-existent in this match, which, again... You can kind of figure out pretty early in the match how he's going to play. Also, knowing Spalletti, I I think he probably wanted to see if his halftime talk would work before he changed any players. And in fairness, it did look like we were a bit more threatening in the first 15 minutes of the second half. Like there was that the run and the cross by Kim that Magnon kind of, I don't know if he misjudged the ball or he was anticipating something more out in front of the goal. So he had to reach back and, and kind of save the ball from ending up in the back of the goal. Mario Rui cranked one <laughs> right into Magnon's face. He also played a dangerous ball into the area, but Tonali got a touch on it just before Di Lorenzo got there. And then there was those two speculative efforts that I mentioned from Simeone and Lobotka. Milan seemed pretty content to sit back and defend at the start of the second half and just wait for that opportunity to pounce on the counterattack, which is exactly what they did to score that third goal. But with how little we created in the attack... It was almost like this match was over by the 25th minute when they scored their second goal. Our XG was 1.2, so even if we didn't concede at all in the second half, it's not likely that we would have won this match. It was one of our lowest XGs of the season. We only had a lower XG in the losses to Inter and Lazio, and curiously in the two wins over Roma. So, you know, we've talked about the attacking struggles. We've talked a little bit about the midfield struggles. Let's move on to the defense, and I'll ask you a similar question that I asked about the midfield earlier. Was this the worst defensive performance that we've had all season? Yeah, again, <laughs> the answer has to be yeah. Yeah, we weren't close to them. I think we, we weren't used to... We've seen some teams lower in the table try to press that high, but 
by definition, they're a lot weaker. They didn't have, you know, if you're if you're pressing that high, I think Sassuolo did it. You don't have a, by definition, a Rafael Leal to do what he can do on the break. So, like you said, Milan were perfectly, understandably happy in the second half to sort of take what they've got and sit back. We weren't used to it, I don't think so much. We certainly weren't used to the the high press, and then we weren't used to them being quite so, you know, playing a team that devastating on the break. Who knows? The international break obviously there's been a lot a lot written about Kim and what happened with him being away on international duty. He's been obviously superb this season. That was his his worst game. Mario Rui was by the fact his biggest strength offensively. That's probably his biggest strength defensively is an offense, actually. You know, not that he's a bad defender, but him pushing forward, him crossing, that didn't seem to be happening. Even, you know, De Lorenzo had a couple of misplaced passes. So you know, as a unit, we weren't really there. And individually, I think it was probably each of them's worst performance of the of the season as well in the back four. Yeah, it turns out that Kim is actually a human being and he is susceptible to having a bad match here and there. Whether that had anything to do with, you know, his complaints about the Korean national team, I don't know. But he had at least a part to play, I would say, in three of the four goals that we conceded. On the first goal... He played a long through ball straight to Calabria, which is how Milan got possession. And then shortly after that, we conceded the goal. On the second goal, he just failed to clear the cross. I don't know if that was just unlucky that it was just out of reach or maybe a mistimed jump. So I wouldn't put too much of that on him. I think, to be honest, that one was more on Cavada and Zielinski for just not tracking back to defend Brahim there. And then on the fourth goal... Of course, he was completely undressed by Alexis Salamakers. In retrospect, I really wish he just took a professional foul there because that would have both prevented the goal and it would have ensured that he rested on Friday against Lecce because Kim's been on a yellow card or on four yellow cards for a little while now, so he would have been suspended for yellow card accumulation. Rachmani didn't have the best game either. He was beaten on a couple of occasions by Leao. Leao ran straight between Rachmani and Di Lorenzo on the first goal, and then he dribbled around or passed Rachmani on the third goal. It was a very Cavada-like play, actually, the way he cut in and then cut back outside and fired into the top corner with his left. You know, our back line was kind of a mess on the first goal altogether. Like, as I mentioned earlier, we had numbers back, but... Mario Rui got caught out of position and then he got beat by Brahim. That forced Kim to shift over to the touchline. In doing that, he kind of played Leao onside, although I think Leao timed his run anyways and Di Lorenzo and Rachmani were not aligned. The whole line was just all over the place. So had they been more in sync, then maybe we might have caught him offside there. But I think you also just have to tip your hat to Leao in terms of the run that he made. I don't blame Rachmani too much for the third goal just because it's such a tough position to be in for a defender when you have a player that's running with the ball at pace towards you and you're kind of flat-footed because you're trying to hold the line, let alone when it's a player that's as skillful as Leao. And then he still needed to finish with that brilliant strike into the top corner after he got past Rachmani. The mid didn't help a whole lot defensively either. Like I, I mentioned that, you know, Zielinski and Cavada not getting back to help defend on that second goal. And that was one of the things I mentioned in my preview that, I mean, I was expecting a 3-4-1-2 or, or whatever, but either way, I kind of expected that with the wingbacks joining the attack, we'd be a little bit at a numerical disadvantage. 
so we needed our wingers and our midfielders to help defend and they just for whatever reason i honestly i think that they've become so accustomed to kim's domination that they probably just figured okay kim's gonna head this ball out and they're positioning themselves to counterattack, and instead kim doesn't get to that ball and it just looks like everybody's just grossly out of position the one midfielder who I thought actually played well, and and maybe, again, I might be in the minority about this. Maybe I'm just being way too generous on these guys. But I thought Angisa had a decent match in the midfield. Obviously, nobody played well offensively, but it seemed like he won a lot of 50-50 balls just with his physicality against a player like Tonali, for example. And to me, that's sort of Angisa's primary role. Yes, he scored a couple of goals this season, and at least he used to make these nice turns in the midfield. He doesn't do them as much now as he used to, but for me, his job is to press high, it's to win the ball back, and then get it to the playmakers and the goal scorers. So I thought he did a, a pretty good job about that. The last thing I'll say about our defense is that we were not very compact. And, you know, I stumbled across this video on Twitter of Jose Mourinho doing some punditry work. I guess it was between coaching jobs and he was explaining the difference between football principles and football systems. And what he said was that no matter what system you play, whether it's a high block, a low block, a mid block, there are certain key principles that always apply. Like everyone plays in a block. And that's essentially what playing compact means. It means the distance between the back line and the front line is short, which allows you to take away the space. And this was the only match that I can think of this season where our opponent really stretched us where they really expanded that distance between the back line and the front line. And that is why it seemed like Milan just had so much space all the time to run into. And then I also think, you know, especially in the latter stages of the match, I think we kind of gave up a little bit. So that made those counterattacks look <laughs> a little bit easier for them as well. I want to get your thoughts on what this means for the champions league that's coming up, the tie that's coming up because According to the, the sports books, we're still heavy favorites to advance to the semifinals and, and probably to the finals as well. But do you feel like this might have changed that or, or might have changed the odds a little bit, at least from a psychological standpoint? I think it absolutely has to have an impact. But, you know, before then, like you said, maybe some certainly not in the city anywhere I went. There didn't certainly before the game, there was absolutely no doubt about the Scudettos in the bag. But if we'd have even drawn this game, it would have made, you know, Lecce on Friday, if we'd have drawn the Milan game and then drawn the Lecce game, even with other people's results, you're thinking, oh, that's fine. And like you said earlier, even there's that little bit of doubt now, even in the Scudetto reckoning, you know, whereas we might have been able to, and I know Spalletti hasn't really done that throughout the season, but we might have been able to rest some players on Friday. I don't think we really can actually now. So that might have an impact like we've already discussed, I don't really think Spalletti will or should change tactics because we've been so incredibly successful this season. But knowing that Pioli will be thinking of those things and doing those things, will he employ exactly the same tactics next week? I'd be surprised now. Um, he always seems to do something slightly different. And we've been so good this season and we've had especially in, in Victor and, and Kavada, so devastating with those two. With one of them gone, maybe we have to think slightly more about a way that we can, you know, hurt Milan, like we, we've already sort of mentioned, in terms of if that means more overloads and more crossing to play to Simeone's strengths. 
it's got to have an impact. I think, like we said, there are lots of other reasons that this game went wrong for us and, and right for Milan, but we've been an invincible force this season and it certainly puts that doubt in there to think, actually, well, maybe we were quite lucky at the San Siro to get the 2-1. If our players are going to have any doubt, it's it will creep in in that Champions League game. And, you know, I think it's something that Spalletti said when we drew Milan, you know, at that point we were... 20-odd points clear of them. I think we're still 20 points clear of them. But a bit like Real Madrid in Europe, they're Real Madrid. We're Napoli. We, we're we not in the European Cup even that often historically. And that weight of sort of their, their Milan, they just go through. I think there is that psychological bit of fear there, which might not be in there in the league, but in the Champions League in a one-off tie. I think it's uh, it's certainly going to put some doubt in there, I think. You know, there are some people that said we're almost suggesting that we lost this match on purpose. I have no doubt in my mind that that's false. <laughs> There's no way I can see us throwing a match just to gain some sort of psychological kind of motivational type of benefit. I think we we handed that psychological advantage to Milan with this result. I think we'll use the result as motivation, but we definitely did not do this on purpose. In terms of the sort of planning for the next match, I feel like a lot of that will come down to whether Victor Osiman plays in that first leg or not, because you have to plan for him. And, you know, who knows? Maybe Pioli wouldn't have played such a high press if Osiman was in the lineup because he has to allocate resources to maybe double up on Osiman or, or play a different player that's maybe a bit more physical or bigger or whatever to deal with Osiman. And likewise for Spalletti, I mean, I think I think Spalletti can change something up if Osiman doesn't play because he already knows, okay, if I go with the exact same approach that I used in the league, that didn't work. Actually, it went horribly wrong. So I can't do the same thing again there. He might stick with the same formation but have different tactics. Whereas if he has Osiman in the lineup, then he might stick to something more akin to what we've been playing all season. The other interesting thing, and maybe it'll be helpful for us as well, is that the first leg will be in Milan, which you would typically think is not an advantage. But given the whole situation with the fans, it might be good for us to kind of get away from the Maradona for a little bit, get away from the drama. We know that even for the return leg, a lot of the ultras won't be there because the fidelity card will be required for the return leg, the second leg of the Champions League tie. And for those of you who listened to the episode of In the Shadow of Vesuvio with Henry and Michele, you know that a lot of those ultras have intentionally chosen not to get the fidelity card. So what will that mean in terms of you know the fan support and whether that impacts the players or or not or works against them perhaps as we saw in this match? That's a good segue to what we'll close the podcast with, which is this whole drama now with the Ultras and the club president, Aurelio De Laurentiis. I mentioned at the top that you were at the match, so I want to get your thoughts on the protest from the Ultras and the reaction of the fans. But just before you give your perspective, again, I highly recommend that everyone check out that episode of In the Shadow of Vesuvius with Henry Bell and Michele Borini. I think they just did an excellent job of explaining the context around the protest and why it's perhaps not quite as simple as it might seem on the surface. And Raf and Raf also had an excellent discussion about it on the Napoli rant. Dom gave his thoughts on it on Napoli Talk. So check out all those shows as well if you haven't already. But, you know, Ashley, what did you make of this whole situation from where you were sitting in the Maradona? 
Uh, yes, I, I too listened to the in, in the Shadow podcast, which yeah, you said explained it brilliantly. From my perspective, I was sat right below, as in the the inferiore below the the ultras. So, in terms of what actually happened with them and any infighting, you couldn't see. So, I was in the stadium several hours before. I mean, you could see, you know, lots and lots of flags sort of down by the metro station. And it's like, oh, that's strange. And obviously that was was the ultras, as they said, they were going to doing their support outside the stadium. And then in the build-up inside the stadium was was still very good. I think it was still very positive. The rest of the, the stadium were sort of singing, chanting beforehand. But then there was, as soon as the game kicked off, the stadium just went very quiet, actually. And that was, whereas the ultras would have picked up the baton then to sort of be the ones leading, chanting, singing. It was noticeable. I said I couldn't see anything above. It was noticeable that the stadium just went a bit quiet before Milan had scored, you know, well before that. So it did create a bit of a slight, odd, eerie atmosphere as soon as the game kicked off. And then, yeah, there was lots of fans from the other sections of the stadiums booing the ultras, singing some of the songs or, or certainly disagreeing with it. We'll never know if that might have been different if we'd have got an early goal. The ultras would have obviously still continued their protest. So it's quite easy to now just align the things to say that that caused some kind of eerie atmosphere. But it did a little bit, clearly. Um, it wasn't helped by how the game went at all. And then obviously the end of the game, you know, in the last 10, 15 minutes, when from our vantage point, you could just see the first sort of flare being thrown then several others. And then, yeah, at that point, like I said, we were 4-0 down and I think the, the players were in any way going to come back. And it just felt slightly surreal, slightly odd and certainly not supportive. So hopefully something can be, I think it's unlikely, uh, something that can be sorted out between De Laurentiis and the Ultras, but that doesn't look very likely at all. I agree. I mean, I understand there's an argument on both sides and the solution is probably somewhere in the middle. Now, perhaps it's because I'm a Westerner from North America, but I tend to lean more towards the Laurentiis' position on this one. I felt like Mikela was still kind of leaning a bit more towards the ultras and he lives there. So obviously he has a unique perspective as well. I understand why De Laurentiis does not want flags when half the time they're going to be insulting him. You know, I think the ultras using their only chance to hurl insults at him certainly doesn't help the situation either. I mean, why is someone who's just been insulted, the only chance that they did were to call him a son of a bitch or whatever, you know, why is he going to be motivated to extend an olive branch? Yes, I get that the average fan wants to hear chants in the stadium, but these guys have crossed the line so many times that I also understand why De Laurentiis wants to get rid of them altogether. And going back to people asking De Laurentiis to extend the olive branch, as far as I'm concerned, he already has extended the olive branch because they're not enforcing the assigned seat rule in that little section. You know, a lot of those fans are getting in without fidelity cards, even if it is a requirement. I don't want to generalize, but I find it a little bit suspicious that some of them just simply refuse to get these fidelity cards. Like, why are you so adamant that you don't want to be in the system? I mean, that makes me think a little twice a little bit. I also get that the ultras are usually the fans that support the team in whatever weather in away matches. But guess what? We played for two months without the ultras 
at away matches and we did just fine and the reason why all Campania residents were not permitted to attend those away matches for two months was because a select group of ultras decided to have a brawl in the middle of a major highway in italy the last thing i'll comment on is on the ticket prices because a lot of people have acknowledged that those prices seem to contradict De Laurentiis' policy of creating a family-friendly environment. Personally, I think that only holds true if the prices are kept that high indefinitely, and I simply don't think that that will be the case. I'd be surprised if even the Hellas Verona prices were anywhere near that level for the Milan match, or certainly for these Champions League matches. They'll be higher than usual because we're still in the home stretch of our first Scudetto in 33 years, which means people will be flying into the city to watch this team play. That demand drives the prices up, but I'd be surprised if the Curva were 90 euros for the Hellas Verona match. Likewise, maybe at the beginning of next season, the prices may be high, but then I expect them to come down as the season progresses as well. Yes, unfortunately, that means that some locals may not be able to attend some of the most important games, even if they have supporting the club all season. So I get that angle, and that is unfortunate. But, you know, that's pretty much how any major sporting event works. Like, you know, the Super Bowl in America is the biggest game, football game of the year. And regardless of what stadium it's held at, you're probably not getting the locals there because the ticket prices have been driven up so high by the demand. You can probably say the same thing about the Champions League final. You can say the same thing about big music concerts, like a you know a U2 concert. Maybe a lot of locals don't get to go to those because the tickets are too expensive as well. So sometimes the prices are just a function of supply and demand. I know that's that's a yucky kind of answer because it's very cold. It's very business-like, but... At the end of the day, this is also a business, and I mentioned this previously as well, that those funds will then be, you hope, used to either keep the existing players who might be enticed to leave or to bring in new players and and help the team continue to succeed. Okay, that is where I will leave it. Ashley, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? just said about the the atmosphere in the city compared to the the stadium is is very very different it's you know for for that particular game the the city around the city it's complete party time so it's a shame that you said the ultras can't sort of get on board with it. i know they've the one that have been there the longest time they've been away games they've been here longer than me but yeah it's, it's everywhere else you go in the city it's people being happy, people chanting, the city is completely decorated and everyone, you know, wherever you go, singing, it, it's fantastic. So it would be uh, it would be really great if we could get that in the stadium for the last couple of months. That's really important to know as well, because I feel like this has put just uh, dampen on on the mood, but it's good to hear that everything is still very positive in the city. And, you know, I think that'll make this match against Elijah all that more important, because if we can get a win there, which... I mean, Lecce are not an easy team, but it's certainly a a match you would expect to win. Then that should lift people's spirits up again. And, uh, you know, I even saw a report. I I haven't validated it yet, but I thought I saw a report that one of the Curva, I think it was Curva, kind of extended that olive branch and maybe put out a statement suggesting that they need to support the team. And and so hopefully this was just a one-time protest that they made their point, everyone got it, and now we can go back to what we normally see at the Maradona. Ashley... That is where we'll leave it, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Jared. Okay, you can find Ashley on Twitter at AshleyPierce84. 
You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Fortunapoli Pod. I will be back hopefully very soon with a preview of the Lecce match on Friday, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Sports Social Podcast Network.